Exodus chapter 1. Take your Bibles, turn there. Your devices, flip there, swipe there, slide there, however you get there. We're going to start reading in verse 6 of chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So, They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, the other was Puah. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. Give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them all families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. God, we ask for mercy. Here we have a story of you showing mercy. 
reminded in the past even of how you have shown mercy, and we pray that you would do so yet again. This time, not sparing our sons only, but that you would all give us understanding of your word. Give light and illumination, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Might ruin the uh, Christmas party with this story, but it's a good one nonetheless. I don't know if you saw it in the news. It just happened, actually, North Carolina just last week where a church had their Thanksgiving party. It's really actually a funny story if you think about it. They had their Thanksgiving party and somebody brought Brunswick stew, which if you know what Brunswick stew is, you know it's the greatest dish ever made. Except this Brunswick stew wasn't the greatest dish ever made because it had food poisoning in it. Somebody had maybe not washed their hands after they had gone to the bathroom and it was um, contaminated, we'll say. Plus, you also know that Brunswick stew is cooked best low and slow, so it has plenty of time for the stuff that's bad in it to just continue to grow like a Petri dish. (laughs) And so the church gets together for their Thanksgiving meal, and 300 people walk away with food poisoning. 300 people walk away with food poisoning because of the Brunswick stew. I'm just going to say gently and lovingly, try not to think about that when we have our Christmas party next week. And I was thinking about that because, I mean, it's amazing. You think about 300 people getting food poisoning simultaneously and think about, like, you can't call anybody for help because everybody has it. I mean, it's not like all of your resources. We just did new members. You can't, you can't call any other members because everybody's down with it. The part that made me laugh, though, the thing to contemplate the most that I've just enjoyed is what do you think it's like for the people who cooked it today? Well, I mean, if they're, like, actually not in the hospital. Like, you ever think about, like, what's it like their first Sunday back? (laughs) Actually, I mean, better yet, I mean, just, I'm going to make up part of the story. I don't know if this is, you think about, like, a husband and wife that cooked it. Can you imagine the fight they had at home between, like, throwing up? Like, this is all your fault. I didn't do anything. It's your fault. And you think about when they go back to church today, if they're able next Sunday, if they're not. Like, how does the body respond to that? I mean, do you think there's whisperings of like, it was them? (laughs) Do you think it's one of those where like, they come sit up here and everybody shifts to the other side? (laughs) Or do you think somebody was able to walk up to them and say, you know what? God ordained for this to happen. Be at peace. Because I can guarantee you, there are a lot of 300 very unhappy people, plus any children, anyone else associated in the home. I guarantee no one is happy with that. If you haven't had food poisoning recently, it's amazing. Maybe I'm a man on this one, and I have the man flu, but you lose the will to live instantly. It's (laughs) shocking how much you're like, Jesus, just take me home. And then to have exactly identified whose fault it is. And then to see how the body is going to interact. Will you blame them or will you acknowledge that God has ordained even this? Even this. You see, where we are in Exodus, we have uh, the beginnings of a really bad story. It's hard to preach this one, honestly, as uh, life is realistically so good for us here. 
But a passage like this, it's, it's hard to get into the emotional, the, the depth of feeling that is contained in a passage like this. And it's hard to get in some ways, I guess, because this isn't our story. This isn't what we're taught as to who we are from the very beginning. When you think about who the Jews were, it is they are the ones that God brought out of slavery. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. This is their God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And here we have the beginnings of the problem. Israel's brought down into Egypt where Joseph has been. They go down as 70 and the Lord blesses their fertility rate in a way that probably hasn't been rivaled in human history, I'm going to guess. They go from 70 to millions, four or five million in the space of 400 years. That is not too shabby without modern medicine. It's staggering. And they begin to multiply so rapidly that it begins to create problems in Egypt. So much so that there's leadership change take place. Verse 8, a new king over Egypt, depending on uh, which date this is in history. It's either a new king, a new pharaoh came into power, or Egypt was invaded. It was one of the two, depending on which date you take, it's one of those options. And this one, it says he doesn't know Joseph. It's not that he didn't know who Joseph was. Everybody would have had an idea as to who Joseph was. No, instead, it's he didn't have a familiarity, he didn't have an intimacy, he didn't have a, uh, a true and accurate and tender trust of who Joseph is. Instead, you have the new king coming into power and seeing here's a guy who has control over everything. He's number two in the land, he has his fingers in every bit of business. If he goes rogue, everything falls apart. Which wouldn't actually be a problem, except for the fact that he's not Egyptian. I mean, it's interesting. It's like actual one of the few requirements we have for president, right? President has to be born in American soil, effectively. Can't be naturalized in, I mean, uh, uh, brought in through immigration. Why? Because you, you want to have an invested stake and identity. This is who I am. Joseph, however, is not. And so the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, begins to have a conversation with his people. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And it reads so sanitary. Let's deal shrewdly with them so that they don't continue to multiply. And if war breaks out, they'll turn against us and overthrow us. But verse 11 begins to kind of clue us in to the problem. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. It's an interesting actual kind of solution to the problem. Hey, look, you have a people in the land that have a birth rate that is far exceeding your own. So we can solve the problem. Not by us having more babies, but making sure they don't. So what we'll do is we'll put them to such hard labor that one, they're either not in the same location long enough to increase the birth rate or they're too tired when they get home to make sure that the birth rate continues to increase. We'll make their life 
so tiresome, so wearisome, so exhausting that they won't have the energy to make sure the birth rate continues to grow. We'll just wear them out. And you start to go, okay, I mean, that's, that's not good. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to live that way. I don't like the idea of somebody forcing me to work that hard, but okay. And then you find out more. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And again, depending on which date you take, uh, they think they know either potentially if you take the late date, the two cities it is. If you take the early date, the guess is a little bit um, less clear. If you go on the History Channel and watch any of the documentaries on this, don't believe most of them. It's not useful. But verse 12, it continues that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiply, the more they spread. (laughs) And again, you would say, "This, this is impossible. How is this happening? How is it that they continue to increase? And so the Egyptians then double down. And this is the part that you're supposed to see as you read this, is the constant intensification of the problem. The intensification of the persecution in verse 9, it was, hey, let's just make their life hard. Let's exhaust them so that they're not able to reproduce. But in 12, it's let's make their life bitter. Verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. This ruthlessly term is a term that's explained in the law later that it was actually sinful for Israel to treat anybody with this type of behavior. Merciless, relentless, aggressive, and unpleasant. They force the people of Israel now to work not just as manual labor, but they make their lives bitter with the difficulty of the service. I remember as a kid, sixth grade, right over there in Charlotte, doing a a mini course, a a study in Egyptology, and studying all of the Egyptian architecture and thinking like, man, how on earth do you build these things without modern, like, machinery? How do you do this without a crane? How do you do this without a forklift? The answer is you do it with Israel. You do it with slavery. What you lack in powerful tools, you make up for by just throwing people at the problem. You make them work so aggressively hard. You don't don't care for their condition. You don't care if they die. You don't care if they get crushed along the way. You don't care. You work them, as it says in 14, ruthlessly as slaves. And again, for most of us, we get that and we're just like, oh, okay. I mean, I know that's not good and all, but like, it is what it is, right? But realistically, I guarantee you, this passage reads a little bit differently if this church isn't filled with white people. I mean, it's just being honest. I mean, it's it's easier for us to read when our heritage is not one that is marked by this kind of oppression. To think of how it changes a culture to be possessed, to be owned, and then through that ownership destroyed. They 
belonged to Egypt, and Egypt sought to break them. And again, we get that, and we go, okay, I mean, categorically, I understand that. There's a category in my brain for difficulty like this. It's a category. I understand it. I mean, I don't emotionally get all of the depth of it, but I understand. Until you think about the bigger picture, and this is where you have to go back again to Genesis 15. We're going to to be in this one a lot. You're probably going to end up memorizing this one just because this is the foundation for how to view the book of Exodus. Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward shall come out with great possessions. You see, this is actually the first point is when you kind of have to try to figure out how to reconcile those two ideas together. It's to understand that God is the one who has ordained this difficulty. It's not a surprise to him. It's not a mistake to him. It's not Egypt got one over on God. Ooh, that Pharaoh was really clever. It's not that God has made a mistake. It's not that God has messed up. God has ordained for this difficulty. Abram, the promise at the very beginning, this is hundreds of years earlier, that God would send his people specifically into this situation. God ordained for their difficulty. And you think about, well, does that make a difference? That God ordained for their difficulty. And I would ask a simple question. If you had made the Brunswick stew and you showed up at church today, would it make a big difference that God had ordained that suffering to happen? Besides simply you were an idiot and you didn't wash your hands. Or when you get tragically ill. or the death of a spouse, or infidelity, or betrayal. To know that God ordains difficulty. Again, it's not that the devil gets one over on God. It's not like, wow, he was really clever this time. But that God intends it for a purpose. He intends it for a purpose, and that purpose is always good and always wise because we know our God. And I would say sometimes maybe we probably ought to think about that a little bit more and maybe confess a little bit. Our why me syndrome. The me matrix, how I I process everything through my own kind of small-minded, limited perspective on everything of why I get so grumpy or upset or hurt or about whatever thing. But instead to be reminded that God has ordained difficulty. He's ordained persecution. He's ordained suffering. And he uses it for good and proper purpose. Now, I'll be honest with you. 
when we are taken into these seasons of great difficulty, there is a very specific temptation that most of us will undergo. And you may not be aware of it because you don't see it all the time and you don't have these conversations all the time. But from the pastoral side of it, of a person who talks with hurting people regularly, one of the great temptations is in the middle of great difficulty to say, well, you know what? I've just got to deal. And so I'm going to kind of put away some of the obedience oriented activities in my life so I can cope. It's to say, look, I I know that times are hard right now, so I'm just going to get through it, and so I'm going to put away the things. And I I just need a break. I just need a season. I just need a, I'll stop doing maybe all of the best things for me just until I get my feet underneath me. It hurts too bad to be obedient. It's too hard to be in the scriptures. It hurts too much to pray. It's all verbalized in different ways, but it's always the same idea that because of my persecution, my pain, my suffering, my sorrow, I can jettison obedience in a bit. Not all the way, but a little. And I love how, again, Moses challenges us, the Spirit of God challenges us with this very thing as the persecution intensifies. It first starts with the Egyptians just being cantankerous towards uh, the Hebrews and making them work so hard that they uh, can't partake in all of the activities they might have been able to. And then it's intensified to relentless and ruthless persecution in this way, forcing them into a slavery that is um, evil in the most awful and and gross grotesque kinds of ways, and then even further the intensification in verse 15. Pharaoh pulls aside, uh, we we can guess, or probably the two heads of the, the midwifery institution, whatever it is. It's not just he grabs two midwives. This would be kind of like what we would think of as... Um, you know, the director of the birthing center over at CMC Pineville. These are probably the two ladies who were in charge of the entire kind of process of childbirthing in the Hebrew camp and says, oh yeah, by the way, (laughs) when it comes time for you to deliver a child, and not just you two, but all of the midwives as a whole, if you see it's a boy, kill him. This will serve multiple purposes. It will keep an army from growing in the land. You can't have soldiers if you don't have dudes, so kill all the dudes. Secondly, it's the easiest way to get rid of Israel because you're breeding up a marriable body that will then be bred into Egypt. What they will do is be cross-married and Israel will cease to be. You do this for an entire generation, all of your boys disappear. You have a generation full of women that then have to be married to somebody. And who are they going to be married to? They'll be married to Egyptians. And guess what? One generation later, Israel doesn't exist. They're gone. You have no more Hebrew children to even have to worry about because Egypt will win the day. And the command specifically falls on the midwives. And again, amazing to think about how God has infinitely and wisely crafted his church to think about at this point in human history, the rise and fall of Israel, humanly speaking, is determined by two holy midwives. I mean, out of all of the people in Israel that you would think would be used to preserve a nation, it's two OBs. Who get together and go, now? <laughs> now. I mean, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, you are an impressive individual, but no. I mean, I know persecution's difficult. 
I mean, you think about it, it's probably their husbands that are the ones being abused out in the fields. It's probably their husbands that they have to worry about. Will they be crushed by a stone? Will they even come home today? You have to think it's not in a sterile, emotionally easy, engaging sort of conversation. This is the conversation where if you defy this man, you and your family, or worse yet, only your family could disappear. And man, if there was ever a time to be like, look, that it's just, I just can't even, I just, I just can't do it. I just, I'll cave a little. Well, no. Well, no, no, I mean, God's, God's law, God's commands, they're, they're not just for the good times. They're for the bad times too. He's to be obeyed and sickness and in health. He's to be obeyed in plenty and want. He's to be obeyed in all aspects of life because he is the living and true God. And so they defy the king of Egypt. And I love the conversation that follows in verse 18. The king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? You're letting the children live. No joke. And it's fun. I, I, I have to say out of this passage, verse uh, 19, is the most enjoyable to read in all of the commentaries because nobody exactly knows what to do with it. One, you have an option that these midwives then go directly to the king of Egypt and lie, which is really an intriguing proposition because they literally just did the right thing in the face of persecution and then would do the wrong thing in the face of persecution. I suspect that's probably not the answer. I suspect it's one of two things. One, and this is one commentary I just really enjoy about it, that's actually what's happening. God's already chosen to bless Israel's birth rate. Now he's choosing to bless them by even the way that they have children, which again would make sense. Why is labor and delivery so difficult? Because of the curse. That's God's command. He can repeal it if he wishes and make labor a touch easier. The other option is the way that they chose to uh, violate the king's law was just by moving a bit slowly. I mean, you know how it is, right? Parents, you had that child. Go clean your room. Yes, ma'am. Like an hour later, they've made it 50 feet down the hallway. What have you been doing? I'm going. So the king gets fed up with them and he intensifies the command even further. 21, or 22, I'm sorry. Pharaoh then commands his people. Now the death sentence is given not to the midwives to kill the babies upon delivery. The death sentence is then given to the Egyptians. It's your job, Egypt, when a child shows up. If you find a Hebrew baby, you're supposed to kill him. It's now your job. The entire Egyptian nation is turned into the executioners. And again, I want you just very quickly, emotionally step into that situation. I mean, moms. Can you imagine that? Carrying this child for nine months knowing that the command is given that as you deliver this child 
If the Hebrew in front of you does what the land has commanded to kill your baby in front of you. And then to think about the further command that if any of the Egyptians find your child, that their task is to kill your baby. And again, it, it should shatter us a little bit. It should upset us. It should make us a little bit sick to our stomachs to think about the fact that all of Hebrew life at this point was one that was flavored with intended death. The men were worked to death in the fields, in the building projects. The women are basically objects of death in the birthing chamber, either with their children or even their own flesh. And you come back to that promise. God ordained this difficulty. And that's the challenge, isn't it? It's the hard part with preaching a text like this is one trying to get us to emotionally engage it because realistically, most of us are like, eh, this, I mean, pretty if you're raised in the South, slavery isn't that bad. I'm like, oh, no, it really is. Oh, no, it really is. But then further to wrestle with the fact that this is what God has ordained and that he intends obedience even in the midst of it. I want to do two quick applications uh, or kind of, I guess, bigger points to highlight and then one quick application at the end. First, to highlight, to note through this, and this is for those of you that are actually in periods of suffering now, again, as the church continues to fill up with seats being occupied, we know that number of folks is just going to increase. It's the way that life is designed. First, to be reminded that God blesses even in the midst of difficulty. In this one chapter, we have described the descent of the great and powerful Israel into the worst of worst of kinds of slavery. In one chapter, I mean, you want to talk about it is a plummetous decline. And yet, interestingly, what did it say? God blessed them and they multiplied. 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 Oh, yeah, by the way, verse 20, and God blessed them and gave them families. That even in the midst of the worst kinds of suffering, difficulty, and persecution, to be reminded there are blessings that God is doing even in our midst. To be reminded that this is actually, weirdly enough, where the great growth takes place. Because God has us in turmoil. He has us emotionally raw and engaged. He often provides great spiritual renewal, great blessing even in the midst. But even more so is passage like this is designed, designed to show how bad it is to make us cry out for help. That was what it was designed for with Israel is to make them so miserable, to make them so oppressed, to make them so upset that they would say, we need a helper. And it can't be me, obviously, because I'm in slavery too. We need God to provide a helper. We need God to provide a savior. We need God to provide a way out of this land of death. 
It's a foreshadowing of the gospel. It's why uh, this motif of the exodus, the way out of slavery, is uh, p- taken up and, and carried all throughout the scriptures. It's why when Robert put the order of worship together, you had that reading in John and in Romans of Paul even using the same language of slavery and needing to be freed from this service to a wicked master so that it would force Israel here to cry out to God for a helper and even for us to cry out to God for a savior. You see, that's actually what your suffering is designed to do at its most uh, (laughs) rudest cause, I guess, is to force you to cry out to Christ. To cry out to the one who can help you to cry out in the midst of your need. You see, that's actually when suffering is done correctly. As you see the midwives here doing with one, practicing faithful obedience. And two, uh, with this crying out to God for him to provide a solution. To cry out to Christ. And lastly with this. I recognize that as we continue to grow and again have more seats filled and more people here, suffering is going to be a great reality in this church. I've been here for a decade and I've preached very few funerals. The Lord's been very gracious. But that's mercy. We know that we're going to suffer as a body. And I would suggest and humbly call us to not run from it, to not punish one another for it when it happens. To not judge one another, discourage one another. To not point fingers or to blame. But rather instead use our suffering to say, God has ordained this, but he's given Jesus. Let us together go to the cross. Whether that be funerals, which will happen Physical illnesses which do happen and have happened and are happening. Emotional duress. Difficulties of various kinds may it be that we would together as a family as we've just done. Rather than running from it. Rather than ignoring it. Rather than acting like it's not happening. Might we acknowledge that God has ordained it. That even in the midst of this he's blessing me and led us together turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we don't suffer very well. We don't engage the suffering of others very well. We ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for our self-centeredness. Forgive us for how quickly we turn away from your commands how we soften all of the standards, how we allow all kinds, we rationalize all kinds of evil in the midst of difficulty. Oh God, may it instead be that we together as a body would turn to Christ. May we turn to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.